For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Before we get started, a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by the Appalachian Mountain Club. And this week, we're going to be highlighting their wilderness lodges in northern Maine. To help explain this unique area, I spoke with Steve Tatko, the land manager for the region. We're in a portion of the upper reaches of the Penobscot watershed. We also own the headwaters of the Kennebec watershed, which is a hotbed of native brook trout habitat. And to you, what makes these brook trout so special? The color is really what strikes most people. Right now, these brook trout are black. They're trying to blend in stream bottoms. And it's just amazing to watch their color change throughout the summer with the leaves until into the fall when you get vibrant orangish color to the fish. It's it's really remarkable. And I think it's truly unique to be standing in the largest forest east of the Mississippi River, loaded with native fish that have have always been here for thousands of years. And to to be able to catch one like that in in a remote setting on a fly in particular is pretty special. It's a pretty unique opportunity. Whether you're casting from a canoe on a beaver pond or dapping your fly on the streams that checker the landscape, you're bound to find solitude and adventure at the Appalachian Mountain Club's main wilderness lodges. For more information, visit outdoors.org forward slash drake. Again, that's outdoors.org forward slash drake. Alrighty, on to the show. Welcome back to the Drake Cast. The initial idea for this episode came up about a year ago, when I and 400,000 other people stumbled across this movie online. It's about the initial hookup. It's one of the most exciting moments anybody can have ever. When you see something that size, you freak out. You strip it, strip it. He's bigger than you. It's 150 pounds. Giant-eyed, overgrown minnow. They could have come from a spacecraft. You get tight with it. You've got a hold of a huge (laughs) creature. Something in your heart stops. (gasps) These are a few excerpts from the film 120 Days, which follows guide David Mangum as he chases his favorite fish. I mean, it'd be hard to imagine creating a better fish. I mean, they're hard to hook, they're hard to fight. They, I mean, more often than not, you don't catch that fish, you know? thought of a jumping tarpon or the visual of a jumping tarpon on the end of the line has probably brought more people to saltwater fly fishing than anything else out there. And the guy who said that last line, my boss, Tom Bai, the editor of The Drake, was totally right. A month after seeing the movie, I was on a boat outside of Vero Beach blowing shot after shot at rolling tarpon. These fish had schooled me so hard that I just kind of put them out of my mind. And then in this year's fly fishing film tour was another crazy film about tarpon called Atlanticus. They're the all-around ultimate fish. They're everything that you would want a fish to be. They take a fly, they jump, they fly. They're gigantic and they sometimes give us the opportunity to land them. There really is no other fish like these fish. When you set the hook, it's half dangerous. (laughs) It's so appealing at the same time. It's like a poison. These guys traveled the world. Gabon, Costa Rica in the jungle, then ending up on the border of Panama. In search of the biggest and baddest tarpon out there. 
Everybody kind of has their fish that they, they choose to pursue and that they've fallen in love with. And I happened to fall in love with the tarpon, and I did from the get-go. If I had one day left to fish and I had to choose one species, it'd be a tarpon. After seeing this film several dozen times while on the road with the F3T, it brought back all of the emotions I had felt when I initially saw 120 Days the year before. But this film also made me ask a whole bunch of questions. Where do these fish come from? Are the tarpon that they're catching in Africa the same fish that I see on Instagram in the Keys or the Yucatan? But of course, first and foremost, how can I catch one of these fish? So I decided to get on a plane to see if I couldn't find some answers to all of these questions. And this hunt for knowledge led me to a place that I'd heard about so much from the likes of Jimmy Buffett. Wasting away again in Searching for my Welcome to the Florida Keys. I landed at the airport on a Monday morning, and not long after grabbing my bag, I was picked up by some dudes I'd been in touch with for the previous couple weeks. Hey, are you Luke? Hey. I'm Elliot. Hey. Nice to gone? meet you, man. Peter? Nice to meet nice you, to dude. Meet you, dude. Uh, Jake? Jake? Yeah. How you guys doing today? Oh, that's way easier for you to carry than me. And these guys are really fishy. <laughs> Late one last night? Yeah. We're out till what, 2-ish? 2.30? Yeah. We've been fishing the bridges at night. Tarpon? Any action? Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been crazy. We've been jumping like 20, 30 a night. If you didn't hear that, they've been jumping 20 to 30 tarpon a night. I have trouble getting to the boat though. Yeah, what's the translation to the boat? It's been real slow. We've only been landing the small ones so far. I'm trying to figure out the, how to get the big ones to the boat. Just issues with, you know, breaking through 65 pound line and getting us on the bridges and spitting the hooks. But I wasn't just there to jump or even catch a tarpon. It's what we were going to do after landing the fish that really matters and might even have a long-lasting impact on what we know about these oversized minnows. Today, we take a dive into the deep blue sea in search of the queen of the ocean. We'll get into what we know about tarpon right now, and what a small but dedicated crew is doing to help us learn about this species, and how that can help us protect them and ensure that there are monster fish to enjoy in the future. Stick around. To get a better idea of what these guys are doing here, I sat down with Lucas Griffin. He's in his mid-twenties, soft-spoken, and still has a bit of a baby face that he tries to mask with a beard. While you're down here in the Keys and down in Florida, what's a day look like? Yeah, so we have to balance our time between permit and tarpon. So for us, we generally like to fish tarpon, you know, sunrise, and then we do the, the permit deal when the sun's high up, when we can spot them around the near shore structure or on the flats, and then we'll return to tarpon in the sunset period and then even through the evening. But these guys aren't just any old fishermen out chasing these critters. They're here for a reason. <clears throat> so my name is Lucas Griffin. I'm a PhD student at University of Massachusetts. I'm coordinating the Tarpon Acoustic Telemetry Tagging Project. We started a couple years ago, 
Um, it's a five-year project, and the idea is we really need to understand the connectivity across the southeast U.S., the Gulf of Mexico. We really don't know anything about these fish. Um, it's actually pretty remarkable how little we know. And it's really important to understand these life cycles um, for these fish if we want to conserve them and preserve them for future generations. Along with his co-workers Pete Holder and Jake Brownscomb, these guys are trying to study tarpon. And it just so happens that one of the best ways to do that involves catching them first. And the organization that's funding this research, you may have heard of it, is BTT, or the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And to find out a little more about the organization for which they work, I decided to call up the man who runs BTT. Can we just start by having you stating your name, title, and the work you do for BTT? Sure. Uh, I'm Jim McDuffie, president and CEO of Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And Elliot, it's, it's probably hard for me to describe uh, on most days what I do as work. Everybody at uh, BTT, everyone on our team is passionate about the mission. And so it's just really my good fortune to lead our team as we work together on a range of, of projects, research studies, programs, all aimed at conserving flat species and habitats, and uh, even the fishery at scale. To better understand this organization and how it operates and how it relates to tarpon, we need a little history of how BTT came to be. We had a small group of anglers in the Florida Keys, people who enjoyed the flats and knew the fishery well, people who had fished it for years, who started to see a, a decline in the bonefish population there. This would be 20 to 25 years ago when, you know, when it really hit home for them. Some years they would go days without seeing fish in any appreciable numbers, their concern, I think, grew when they started to recognize this may not be episodic. It may not be just a, a blip in the, the timeline of the fishery, but a longer term and, and, and sustained trend. So they looked around for answers and, and finding none, they decided to explore on their own what they might do. And to their great credit, they valued science. And they, they knew that any action that the group might take in the future would really need to be sound and well-grounded. One of the ways they gather information is through projects like sending a bunch of grad students out on a Hell's Base gift to tag fish. Uh, we're out here in a big channel down here in the Keys looking to hook up into a lot of these tarpon that are around these bridge pilings, bring them up. Um, put them in our sling, and then we'll put some transmitters in them, suture them up, and send them on their way, and we'll be tracking them for five years. But before we could fish, we had to find the bait. <sighs> oh, gee, Ernie. And now we're on this lake and not one bite. Where are all the fishes? Oh, they're down there, Bert. They are. If you'd like, I'll catch some and show you. I, I, I don't need a fishing pole, Bert. How are you going to catch all these fishes without a fishing pole? Oh, you see, I call them. I have this special fish call, and they come right into the boat. And just like Bert and Ernie, these guys also had a trick for calling in the fish. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Great. Thanks, man. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. Mullet, mullet, mullet. In addition to being the greatest hairstyle of all time, mullet are a favored bait fish of tarpon. Here they are. <laughs> yeah, they're right in front. We'll just talk in 
fishy, fishy, fishy. Okay, they're on the left loop. We're at nine o'clock now. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go, Luke. Just threw a cast net on some mullet. Got some bait for uh, tarpon fishing, aka tarpon tagging. With a little help from our friends, pelicans. Luke dragged the cast net full of fish to the back of the boat, where they were deposited into the live well. And if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to be fishing with bait. And I know this is a fly fishing podcast, but sometimes you have to acknowledge the success rate of bait fishing versus fly fishing. And heck, this was all in the name of science. While we were having a good time out there, we were also on a mission. And to give this mission a little more backstory, I called up the professor that's overseeing this whole tarpon tagging project. Let's jump into this. Uh, sure. Could you just introduce yourself, like your name, your title, where you work, and what projects you're currently overseeing in all of your capacities as a human being? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, my name's I'm Dr. Andy Danilchuk. I'm an associate professor of fish conservation at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I'm also a BTT research fellow. In addition to uh, being on the board of directors for uh, IndieFly, I'm, I'm the scientific advisor to Keep Them Wet Fishing. And in terms of projects I've got going on, I ha currently just wrapped up a catch and release project with some collaborators on Steelhead and the Bulkley River, looking at the science and social science behind catch and release on that iconic species. I have a project currently underway in French Polynesia, looking at bonefish reproductive patterns and trying to find solutions for how we can work with a community that can embrace recreational angling as an alternative to, you know, harvesting bonefish for consumption. I'm just launching an exciting project in the Seychelles. It's going to be looking at the movement patterns of giant trevally and probably some stuff on milkfish there too. Yeah, and the list goes on. Do you need like an intern or an understudy? Because I will drop this bullshit that I'm doing at the Drake magazine to come work for you. I ha yeah, I mean, it, the more the merrier. You've probably seen Andy's name or photo on any number of studies published in the last decade. But the reason Andy had agreed to talk with me had nothing to do with any of these projects. I currently have projects in the Keys working on you know, movement patterns of tarpon and movement patterns of permits, and hopefully we'll be adding bonefish onto that as well. Because today we're going to be focusing on Andy's current tarpon project. Can we talk a little bit about your relationship with the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust and how it began and what it has evolved into? Yeah, of course. You know, so I, uh, I, I did all my like undergraduate and graduate training up in Canada. I grew up in Toronto and um, I was in the midst of uh, finishing up my PhD in, at University of Alberta, and, but I was freezing my, my butt off. During that time, somebody passed a, a job posting for a position in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and I, I jumped on it and was lucky enough to get the job and moved down to the Turks and Caicos Islands in 2000. And that's where I was able to see a bonefish firsthand. Uh, and was and was completely blown away. I had a, a friend of mine take me out. I saw him catch a bonefish on a fly rod, and it was like a seven-pound bonefish, and I was like, holy crap, this is just totally awesome. Then I started realizing that we knew very little about bonefish, and based on the job that I had, I started to do some tagging studies on bonefish, and in 2001, 
I, I know that's when I first reached out to BTT and, and they were a relatively young organization then. You know, I, I reached out and asked some advice about tagging, you know, started to build that relationship um, and sort of this mutual interest in terms of understanding um, how bonefish populations function and, and what needs to go into, you know, their conservation and management. After a few years in Turks and Caicos, I moved up to Bahamas, was involved in, in building the Cape Luther Institute which offered me a big facility to do some work, more work on bonefish. And that's when we received our first grant from BTT. I think that was probably back in 2006 or somewhere in there to look at the movement patterns of bonefish and kind of home in on where bonefish spawn. So based on, on that grant, we were able to identify that bonefish move offshore to spawn. We used that model and identified those areas for conservation. This has since transformed into a whole bunch of other projects, including working with tarpon, which were, I'm sure, always on your horizon, but never really the focus in the past couple decades. Yeah, they, they were on the horizon. You know, there wasn't the major conservation concern that was emerging that we were seeing with, with bonefish stocks in the Florida Keys that, you know, we kept on hearing that their stocks were declining. So there was the emphasis on, on bonefish for quite some time. And I think that back in the day, there was already some work being done on like movement patterns of tarpon, but that science was um, using, you know, these pop-up satellite tags, which were pretty big and they could, they could only be attached to big tarpon. And also they didn't stay on tarpon for, for very long. And the outcome of that science was revealing you know, some interesting information about movement patterns. And then that wasn't totally jiving with what we were hearing from guides and anglers. I think there was maybe a disconnect or fact that the previous research on tarpon was just focusing on big fish, you know, there, there aren't only just big tarpon, right? And so when Aaron and Adams and I were chatting about tarpon and, and thinking about conservation concerns and movement patterns, like there's a major gap in our understanding about the spatial ecology and, and habitat use of tarpon. And that discussion evolved at a time when people started using acoustic telemetry more. Quick explainer here. The technology Andy is referencing, acoustic telemetry, involves implanting small transmitters inside of a captured fish. These tags were pretty tiny, meaning they could put them in fish from 10 pounds all the way up to 200 pounds. And most importantly, these acoustic tags were much cheaper than the satellites they had used in the bigger fish before. You know, that allowed us to really think about the, the scale and scope of a tagging study for tarpon, where we could use these acoustic tags, which are much smaller than the satellite tags, and we can surgically implant them in tarpon, meaning that they're not going to get scraped off. You know, they're going to stay in the fish a long time. Another even quicker explainer. The way that this whole project works is that the tags in the fish need to ping off an underwater receiver, which lets scientists know that the fish has been in the area. I think what increased the capacity for us to, to maybe focus on that technology for tarpon were these large sort of collaborative networks of people throughout the coast of the southeastern United States that were deploying all these receivers for all different species, but the same technology, the receivers can hear everybody else's tags. And so rather than us having to invest in, you know, 50,000 receivers, you know, we invest in our own receivers to put in certain locations 
And then we, we have these collaborative relationships with other scientists and, and we share data with each other. And, and then with these networks, we can start to shed more light on, you know, not only what the big tarpon are doing, but what are the medium-sized tarpon doing? What are the 40-pounders doing? What are the 30-pounders doing? Our end goal is to provide a, a much more holistic picture in terms of not only the movement patterns of, of tarpon across a broader size range, but what, what are the essential habitats? that these different size classes are using? And then, you know, what are the potential risks that those tarpon are sort of facing when they're, when they're migrating or not? Was there a reason to go and do this study other than kind of establishing a baseline? Were there anecdotal reports of fewer tarpon being spotted, fewer tarpon being hooked, more tarpon being lost? The more we dig into it, you know, there, there isn't a lot of hard evidence because tarpon are sport fish. There isn't like a stock assessment that's done on tarpon. It's not like a commercially harvested species that gets a lot of attention and, and money from the feds. But, you know, if you talk to a lot of the, the seasoned guides, the ones that have been around in the Keys and in other areas, they're suggesting that tarpon numbers are decreasing they're suggesting maybe the size ranges are changing. And they're also indicating that there might be shifts in when like the migrations are moving through. And so, you know, so I think it's, it's not necessarily a change in numbers, but also maybe a change in, in movement patterns. And also if you couple that with, you know, things that are happening with like water discharge from Lake Okeechobee and habitat destruction in different areas, you know, we, we kind of want to prevent any big declines like we've seen in bonefish to also happen in tarpon because of our negligence because we haven't we don't understand the bigger picture soon enough. So this is a preventative medicine of sorts. Let's not wait until these fish are really on the decline and we're left grasping for answers with no data there to give us any insight into what's going on. And so, you know, understanding this the proportion of the population that that moves so much allows us to demonstrate the the magnitude which we need to bring larger stakeholder groups together to talk about management of tarpon. You know, like if it's just, you know, if we're tagging over the course of these, in the next three, you know, three years or four years, you know, a couple hundred tarpon and only a few of them migrate long distances, then, you know, maybe that's not as important from a management strategy to include, you know, those states and those long-term migration plans and the strategies. But if we're finding that like 50%, 60%, 70% of our tarpon are migrating, and even some of the smaller ones are, it means we need to have more groups at the table. We need a, a larger intergovernmental meetings and, and bringing more stakeholders together because if those tarpon, for some reason, if their habitat you know, at the northern part of the range gets destroyed and, and they're going there for a reason, um, you know, that uh, maybe that just imp impacts the population as a whole. Now that we better understand our mission, it's time to chase some fish. As you're piloting the boat, what are you looking for, Jake? Right now we're running the uh, side scan on the sonar. Just looking around the bridge pilings, looking for fish hanging out here. So we're just cruising along the side of the bridge and try to figure out where these fish are before we set up and, and try to catch them here. While listening to Miley Cyrus at her finest, all of a sudden, pandemonium erupted. You gotta go forward, forward, man. Jake had hooked into a big one, at least a hundred pounds. It launched out of the air and headed straight for the bridge pilots. But we were on it, 
and Jake managed to keep the fish away from the bridge. Until, just like that, the fish was gone. That drag just cinched all the way. Making <laughs> a hundred pound braid. Yeah. I guess we need 600. <laughs> yeah. This is only 50. No. Dude, he wasn't even on the bridge. Yeah, it looked like a decent sized fish. Yeah. 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 Jake was leaning into him. Yeah. Even though we had lost that tarpon, spirits were still high. We made it back to the landing at 2.30 in the morning with plans to do the same thing the following day. Alrighty, this seems like a logical spot for an ad break. When we come back, we'll get back out on the water and maybe even land a fish. Stick around. Are you interested in catching a tarpon? If so, Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures has all the knowledge and connections you could possibly need to land one of these overgrown minnows. Their top tier destinations in Belize, Cuba, and Mexico are sure to deliver shots at one of the baddest fish in the sea. If you're considering chasing tarpon, make sure to go to their website, yellowdogflyfishing.com, and check out their blog post titled, Seven Must Know Tarpon Fly Fishing Tips. Follow these steps and you're guaranteed to increase the likelihood of catching this fish of a lifetime. You can also find the link on our website, drakemag.com. We're also sponsored by the fine folks at Scott Fly Rods. To find out a little more about their line of Meridian saltwater rods, I called up Gary Merriman the owner of the Fishhawk Fly Shop in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's also the creator of the Tarpon Toad Fly. I'll tell you, I've carried Scott for years. And frankly, in my trout rods, I pretty much had used G models. And uh, most of our guys here that work for me also fish that rod. The problem was a few years ago, they really didn't have anything in the saltwater that competed. There were just better rods out there. And in the last couple of years, Jimmy, I think, has done a very, very good job at bringing the saltwater, the meridians, up to speed. Got a rod that I can sell and feel very confident in because I've fished them and I do like them. So, you know, I think it's just been a, a great design that he did. To try out a Scott Meridian for yourself, head down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. After you do that, go catch yourself a tarpon. Alrighty, back to the show. The next morning, before heading out again, we swung by the local bait shop. I mean, we've got all the gear you need to catch all the fish that are out there. Um, take care of the customers that come in, get them what they need. Cool. Where are we? Uh, we're on Cudjo Key, mile marker 22 and a half, uh, down in the, the lower keys. You want to just narrate what all you guys are picking up right now? Yeah, we're just picking up some uh, serious heavy braided line, 180 pound. 180? 100, 100 pound, roll 100, and roll, roll, roll 80. Yeah. We're going to winch them in. We're fishing tarpon at the bridges at night, and fish are strong and current's strong, so we need strong gear. Cool. Lost, uh, we've been jumping 20 or 30 of these a night and not getting into the boat, so it's time to stop playing around. Getting serious. <laughs> Finally, we made it back out on the water caught some more bait, and while running around, we ran into another boat that was also targeting tarpon. You're not John Jr., are you? Mm. 
Okay, did John talk to you guys about tagging tarpon? Talking about what? Tagging tarpon? Uh, no, he has not talked. He hasn't talked to me about it yet. But uh, we're with um, Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and we tag tarpon. I know John was saying that we're gonna try to tag some of your fish this season. Okay. Yeah, but just you see us around. All right. What's your name? Jared. Jared. Okay. So my name's Luke. If you mind, I can grab your number and then no, no. shoot you a text. And if you have clients out, it's, uh, okay. it's always fun to tag them. You guys just going out for a sunset cruise? Yeah, we're just going to, I mean, I mean, we might go about the house of carbon right now. We're going to try to. All right, well, if you hook up, man. <laughs> All right. So, Luke, can you explain what you just did? Like, why you reached out to those guys? Yeah, I mean, the backbone of this whole project is working with guides across the entire <laughs> south southeast U.S. And so we always have those small little conversations with them if they hook up with tarpon. They'll give us a call or a text message. We'll come over, grab their fish, and tag them. So that's the most effective way of this this project is, well, I'll text maybe 10 guides in the in the area, and they'll um, all call me or text me. And how often do you end up going out and grabbing those fish? Uh, pretty often. Um, yeah, I mean, these guys, they do it every day um, for the whole three months of tarpon season. So they know what they're doing, and it's, it's, it's such a huge help working with them. Super yeah. cool. How do the majority of guides in the area, are they receptive of BTT and what you guys are doing? Yeah, um, certainly BTT has a big fly angling following, um, but a lot of the guides we talk with is a lot of spin guys, and so BTT is expanding into that world. And so everyone's really receptive, though, that I've met. Um, everyone's here because of the fish, and it's good business, and they love the fishery. After about an hour of lounging around and singing the mullet song, oh man, he is running. Oh, it's a nice fish. Oh yeah. He's uh, he's off. Yeah. Unless he decided to run right at the boat. He's on still. Yeah, he's to go hard. There you go. Got a little fing hot on it. But not long after my missed opportunity, Pete found himself hooked up. He's right here, Jake. Not bad. He's a little bit bigger than the So we uh, get the tarpon into our sling. Uh, we flip it upside down. I think the water's nice and cool. Flip him upside down. Uh, we make a really small incision, about four centimeters, uh, with the scalpel. We'll put a small, uh, it's called a V16 Vimco acoustic uh, tag, and then we'll, we'll generally suture it. Uh, but depending on the fish's stress, uh, we'll, we'll, we won't suture it sometimes. Take a couple scales for some analysis and some um, tissue for genetics as well. All right, man. One and just like that, the fish, which had been in the water during this entire procedure, 
was swimming back to the bridge to join its friends, carrying around a little piece of technology, which will hopefully help us better understand this species as a whole. And you're filling out the scale card right now? Yeah, so I'm um, got the fin clip here in the vial. I'm just gonna slip mm. it in here, and then I'll take all my samples back to University of Massachusetts at the end of the season. Yeah. I left the Keys the next morning to make my way up north, but just a couple days ago, I called up Luke. Coming in, Bud. Coming in loud and clear. Perfect. How you doing, Elliot? How about you? Where Where are you right now? So we're still here on a little torch and in the lower keys, just uh, pretty much going out every day. So far, we've tagged 21 tarpon. So yeah, getting those numbers up, it's good, productive. So you've been tossing these tags in, and hopefully they're pinging along the receivers. Have you heard back from any of the fish that you've tagged so far, or do you have to dive and then download that data? Yeah, so it's all on these acoustic receivers, and they're on the bottom of the ocean. So they're actually getting these detections, and they're storing it. So we'll actually go and dive and retrieve these receivers in August. So we won't know anything until August. <laughs> but, you know, there's other collaborators out there, you know, in North Florida, you know, in Alabama, they all have receivers. So occasionally I'll get some an email that says, well, we downloaded our receivers. We have some detections for your fish. Now, I haven't gotten any of those emails yet for the fish we tagged this year. I'm just probably, I'm just chalking that up to people haven't downloaded their uh, receivers yet. So we'll, we'll know a lot more come August. Very cool. So your next move, how much longer are you down in the Keys? Until uh, June 15th, and then we're... Uh, taking the boat, and we're heading up to Charlotte Harbor, Tampa Bay, Apalachicola, hopping back over on the East Coast, and uh, staying in Georgia for a couple weeks to tag fish. And then I'll and then I'll move back down um, from Massachusetts in September to tag fish uh, in South Carolina. Well, hey man, you always know that if you need another deckhand, just give me a call, and I'll be right there. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. At this point, you may be asking, what's the bigger picture? Why did I just listen to this? So I asked Jim McDuffie, the president and CEO of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, why this study matters. When focusing specifically on the tarpon tagging project that's going on right now, what is BTT hoping to find? And what are some potential thoughts of how you can take these findings and impact policy? I know that's a long way away, but just if you have some ideas on that. You know, I, I'll tell you what I said two years ago when we were contemplating this project. If, if only these fish could talk, right? The questions that they could answer for us about their travels and the stories that they could tell. At, at the time we were founded, to go back 20 years, like, like everything else, we knew very, very little about tarpon. So the, the new acoustic study really takes uh, our efforts to a whole new level. It's designed to give us the best, most complete, most comprehensive look yet at a range of questions. How are tarpon moving through our coastal waters? What habitats are important to them and at different stages of the life cycle? Certainly that one, but also how do they react or respond to, to changing environmental conditions, you know, like changes in, in freshwater flows, you know, given our example uh, in the Everglades? Uh, or how do they respond or react to man-made alterations in the environment? Uh, how do they react to changes in fishing pressure? What are the connections 
between some of the habitats that are along the coast and, and offshore habitats. We really need hard scientific data on this, and it needs to be more than the kind of snapshot we got from satellite tagging. It needs to be a movie reel that goes over several years, and with acoustics, we, we think we'll, we'll have at least five years of data on each tag fish, if not more. Uh, but we need this data in order to make a compelling and incredible case for stronger regulations and, and better management of the fishery. We also need it to just guide our conservation action, like, for instance, identifying important habitats that are in need of protection or restoration. And ultimately, I think it's, it's fair to say our aim is to play an important role in shaping a conservation management plan, a, a comprehensive management plan for tarpon, one that focuses on the largest spatial scale needed. You know, tarpon don't observe any, any signs about you're now leaving Florida and entering the state of Georgia. There are no underwater submerged signage like that. And so we have to uh, recognize that they don't, they don't recognize any boundaries or borders, and our conservation efforts shouldn't either. To better understand the lasting impacts of a study like this, Andy Danilchuk gave this example. There was a, a very recent example, the permit telemetry project in the Keys, where we've got uh, a postdoctoral fellow, Jake Brownscombe. Jake, who we met on the boat, he's the one that lost the big fish while we were being serenaded by Miley Cyrus. So we've been using the same technology. We've been putting acoustic transmitters in permit and to look at their movement patterns and understanding the, the connection between the permit on the flats versus the permit on on the reefs and the wrecks and it's pretty common knowledge the permit they aggregate on these wrecks um, at a certain time of year in terms of for spawning you know they, they make these spawning migrations and and we have identified that permit that are caught on the flats and do show up on these reefs and wrecks and during these aggregations and uh, but prior to that prior to our study um, based on previous information you know, in 2011, there was a, a regulation put in place, um, a prohibition on the harvest of permit during the months of, of May through July, because that's when they thought the permit aggregated on these on these offshore structures. And so project permit, which using acoustic telemetry, actually showed that these permit are showing up on these aggregation sites earlier. They're showing up in April. Um, and so people are going out there and they're fishing these aggregations and they're fishing these permits that are there to spawn. And, you know, obviously you're stressing the fish out. There's chances for those permits to get preyed upon by sharks and other things because they're stressed, you know, and that's really identifying that these permits are showing up before the time period for the closure that was implemented in 2011, which was May through July. And so this information alone, you know, we, we presented that to FWC and it, it quickly influenced sort of the structure of the fisheries management for permit. And very recently, in, in February of, of this year, the harvest prohibition was extended into April. And so that was like direct conservation regulatory action based on the understanding, the movement patterns of permit, and the fact that they're showing up on these, these structures where they aggregate to spawn sooner. So that, that was a huge win. And, uh, and I think that is a, a prime example of, of how the science that's being funded by BTT, you know, working with. You know, state agencies and, you know, are able to, to take this science and, and do something really positive with it in terms of, you know, protecting, you know, important um, sport fish like, like permit. So. And hopefully we can see something as impactful come out of this tarpon study. Before we go, I asked Andy one final question. 
somebody listening to this who happens to fish for these saltwater species, what can they do to further the cause of BTT and also the other organizations with which you work? Sure. You know, becoming a member with BTT is great because even the limited, the small amount that gets paid into BTT for annual memberships really goes into helping to support the science and conservation. I think being willing to um, share anecdotes, you know, a, a lot of our information about, especially with the catch and release science, a lot of the, the direction of our research comes from people that like to fish for these critters. And that, for, for example, we did a study back at the Cape Luther Institute on the use of a lip gripping device on, on bonefish and whether you should be using one with bonefish or not and what kind of damage does it do. And that question came from a whole bunch of guides and anglers. And so we addressed it. We did it in a very systematic, scientific way. And our, our science showed that, you know, you shouldn't really touch a bonefish with a lip gripping device. You don't need to. And it also causes some pretty significant damage, or it can. And so, you know, I think that anybody that likes to fish for tarpon or bonefish or permit or a lot of these other, any of these other recreationally targeted species, you know, that ultimately getting input from the anglers and the guides helps us direct our science to stuff that is like directly applicable to how these fish are handled, how these fish move. And, and ultimately, you know, a lot of this information is going to get fed back to anglers and guides in terms of whether it's new regulations or even voluntary actions. I mean, we're all one big community, right? Like if the recreational fisheries for all these fishery in all these stocks you know, started to decline, then, you know, we, we, we would lose our, our sport, we'd lose the passion and, you know, and, and these fish also play much bigger roles in sort of the aquatic ecosystems in which they live. And so I, I would say going back and, you know, yes, I mean, supporting BTT, supporting these other non-government organizations that, that have a mandate to, to really help provide sort of actionable science that, that helps us leverage government agencies to maybe change policies that's good. But even some of it is like information that goes back and it doesn't even have to result in a change in regulation. It just has to result in a change in angler behavior because sometimes just one little change in our behavior can, can impact the outcome for every fish that we touch. Well, that's all we got this week, folks. Make sure to tune in in the following weeks to hear some more about tarpon, redfish in Mosquito Lagoon, stripers in South Carolina, Georgia brookies, Shad in the heart of DC, and oh so much more. A huge thanks to Luke Griffin, Pete Holder, and Jake Brownscombe for allowing me to share their boat, to Andy Danilchuk for all the work he does, to Jim McDuffie for taking the time to talk, to Harold and Mona Brewer for their hospitality, and of course, to our sponsors. This whole show would not be possible without support from the Appalachian Mountain Club, as well as Scott Flyrods and Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, who have been with us since the beginning. If you want to support this show, go support those organizations. Book a trip, buy a rod, why not both? Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. <laughs>